And for us, if you're, you know, stuck with me, you, we get to the joy of getting to dive into the scriptures uh, together. Last week, Tony started kind of a mini kind of two-week series on what it means to be a blessing in the world. One of the values we have uh, here at Wellspring, if you've been around any length of time, we talk about this acronym called ABLE. A stands for attend. What does it mean to attend to the voice and person presence of Jesus? B, bless, which is what we're talking about, so I'll skip that here for a moment. But L is learn, that we are a community of people that are learning the way of Jesus through the scriptures, through wisdom, through just being a people that are continually learning the way of Jesus. And then E is eat. It's kind of a way of talking about community, that often Jesus, as he was discipling people and in relationship, he was doing that over food together in community. But like I mentioned, we are kind of focusing in for these two weeks leading up to Holy Week and Easter on this idea of bless. What does it mean? What does it look like to be a blessing to people both inside, in particular for today, those outside the church? Last week, again, Tony, I mentioned he talked about hospitality. And if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to that or you weren't here last week, I'd highly encourage you, go back on our website or kind of wherever you listen to podcasts, go and listen to that teaching because it kind of today will build a little bit off of uh, some of that. And in particular, for this morning... We're going to be talking about, if you have your Bible, I want you to jump with me to Acts chapter 8, right around verse 26. I'll meet you there in a moment, but before we get to Acts chapter 8, I want to kind of start off by talking a little bit about Tom Brady. Yes, Tom Brady. You can boo if you like, if you want to. 2005, Tom Brady, he was 27 years old. He had already won three Super Bowls at 27. You know, he kind of accomplished quite a bit at a very young age. And in this picture here, he's being interviewed after his third Super Bowl on 60 Minutes. And he's kind of pondering, he's wondering, kind of of like this existential moment for Brady, kind of wondering, is this all life really has to offer? He said this in this interview, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? Powerful questions. Steve Croft, who was interviewing Brady, then asked, okay, so what's the answer? And this was Brady's reply. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And for those of us here this morning as followers of Jesus, I think it's a deep conviction if you're a follower of Jesus that we would say to a question like this, we do know. We do know where fulfillment in life is. We do know the purpose and meaning of our lives and the existence of the world. And it's in this person, his name is Jesus. And for us this morning, yeah, that's kind of like the golf clap version there. (laughs) I feel it, right? Yeah. But that resonates, right? There's something that resonates when, when we come into contact with people, whether it's someone like Tom Brady or even a close personal friend that will never be interviewed on 60 Minutes. And they begin to ask these questions. Is there more to life? Is there meaning, purpose, significance beyond all the accolades and accomplishments one could dare possibly dream of ever getting? For us as followers of Jesus, we would have to say, we would joyfully get to say, yes, there is more. There is more to life. And so as we think about what it means to be a blessing in the world, one of the things that we're going to be talking about, or actually the main thing we're going to be talking about this morning, is this idea of when we come into contact with people, what does it look like to actually share explicitly about our faith? To actually both demonstrate and explicitly talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In a word, evangelism. You know, cue the awkward silence, right, with evangelism, right? Actually sharing our faith, right? Actually explicitly talking about the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus, right? And I feel you for a moment. I feel that like kind of whenever we begin to talk about evangelism, whenever I kind of hear someone, a preacher or a pastor talk about evangelism, sharing our faith, there's all these kind of feelings that rise up within me. Like, oh, that can get awkward really fast. I don't want to offend anybody. And especially in a pluralistic kind of seek your own truth kind of culture, I don't know how this evangelism sort of thing actually is going to work. But maybe just kind of work with me for a second. Let's just kind of even talk about briefly this word evangelism, right? Again, I get there's a lot of baggage perhaps with that word depending on your background, but essentially that word evangelism, it relates to good news or the gospel. And the idea of evangelism is both, I would say, demonstrating and speaking, sharing your faith. 
demonstrating the good news, the message of Jesus, both demonstrating in actions and in words, the good news of the person of Jesus. And it's one of those things when you think about people asking those questions, is there more to life? Again, the answer we would say is yes. And this is precisely where I would say evangelism, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news comes in. Because when you think about it like this, when you think about the person and the life of Jesus, Jesus himself seemed to have this as part, and right up at the front, a priority of his mission and vision for what it means to follow him. Jesus, at the end of his life, when he summed up his mission as to why the Son of Man came, he said the Son of Man, Luke 19, came to what? Seek and to save the lost. When Jesus talked about the heart of the Father, Jesus said there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. And when Jesus was getting blasted and criticized for hanging out with all of the wrong kinds of people and getting criticized for having meals with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus said in Mark chapter 2 and in various other places, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but Sick people, unhealthy people, people who need healing to repentance. And for us as followers of Jesus, we begin to recognize that Jesus had a priority for what he called the lost. And I think it's actually helpful and good that Jesus uses the term lost to describe those people who do not yet follow Jesus. Lost, that, might, that term even of itself might conjure up some feelings in you. But think about it like this, lost. The idea of searching for a home. Lost, the idea of searching for a place to belong. Lost, that feeling in your gut when your iPhone loses its battery and you have to use a real map. <laughs> Being lost, remember those days? How did we ever get around? But when Jesus uses the term lost, he's not, I don't think, using that term in a negative sense. He's not trying to label or categorize people in this like, you're dumb or stupid or have no sort of future or hope at all. No, for Jesus, the term lost was a term of compassion. Because the Son of Man, again, Luke 19, came to what? Seek and to save the lost. And so, yes, we might agree, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you might go, yes, Aaron, I agree. Jesus had compassion on the lost. You see that in the text. You see that in the Gospels. But does this really mean I need to share my faith? Isn't that what like the paid professionals do? Or isn't that what like the people that have like the gift of evangelism, they're the ones that are supposed to do that, right? Yes. Maybe. <laughs> there you go. But when we think about this, if you are in that boat right now and you're feeling like, oh, I'm not really into sharing my faith, or at least I want to be, but it's really hard and really uncomfortable, I am right there with you. This morning, thinking about this teaching over this past week or so in particular, recognizing in my own life the huge gap between what I believe about the importance of sharing my faith and my actual practice in life. If I'm being honest, that gap is pretty big. And it's one of those things because I have this feeling within inside me as I think about this. Sharing my faith leads to like this really uncomfortableness inside me because I don't like to offend people. I don't like awkward conversations. And I really don't like telling people what to do. And there's a part of evangelism where some of those things, for better or for worse, are kind of implied or are kind of like a part of that conversation, at least sometimes. Here's the thing. Barner Research Group, kind of a think tank research organization around kind of Christian thoughts or whatever, did a study a few years back called Is Evangelism Going Out of Style? And in this survey, they found that 100% of people, 100% of respondents, agreed with the statement that I have a responsibility and it is a privilege to share my faith with other people. Yet, in that exact same survey, only 59% of people within a 12-month period actually had a conversation with someone with the hopes and the intention of seeing that person come to Jesus. There's a 41% gap between what people say they believe and what they actually practice. Now, I'm probably in that 41% gap. I say that to just kind of own that and to recognize that this in particular, I know for many of us in this room, is an area where that is hard and it's difficult. There's a lot of awkwardness in it. 
But if we're actually going to take the text and the life and teachings of Jesus seriously, I would submit to you that this is actually crucial to our, not only our own personal formation, it is, but also what it means to be a part of the family of God and to be a part of what God is doing here in this world. Again, thinking about this, for many of us, especially at kind of maybe my generation a little bit younger, there might be a little bit of like a, a bad taste toward evangelism. It kind of conjures up like this idea of like Christian marketing or like trying to force people to like, here's four points, believe them. I did my job, I'm good, right? And there's not really a relational context to it sometimes. It's forced. It can sound manipulative. It kind of can be like, okay, yes, invite someone to church. Subtext, we want the church to grow. But when we think about this, again, think about the life and teaching of Jesus. He had compassion on people. That was what drove and motivated Jesus in his life to extend that love, to extend that grace, to extend the heart of God to those that people in his day thought were the furthest from God. And so again, sometimes, I think sometimes this is about myself, that we think evangelism is all about like gritting our teeth, trying really hard, really kind of just forcing the situation. We have to do this. Because especially after a talk like this about evangelism, sometimes the temptation is for a portion of the room to go, okay, I'm going to go out this week, I'm going to try really hard. I got like that one person in my mind, and I'm going to make sure to make it happen to bring up the awkward Jesus conversation at some point this week. And so we grit our teeth and we try really hard. That's maybe about a third of the room. And there's probably two-thirds of the room that are like, I'm just going to tune you out for the rest of the, the morning, right? Because <laughs> this is just awkward. When we think about evangelism, like we put all this pressure on ourselves at times. Like we think every conversation is like the Super Bowl. And you're like on the two-yard line, and you're about to win the Super Bowl. And you have like the best running back in the, in the game. And instead of handing the ball off, you pass. <laughs> and you lose. Right? Some of you got that one. Thank you. You're my people. There you go. Just wounded from the Seahawks and the Patriots. But you get the point, right? You get the point. But what if we have it all backwards? That it's not about us and how much effort we put into it. It's not about us trying harder and like figuring out how much we have to know before we can actually then have the right conversation. And it's not about us taking God to places where God is not already working. What if we're actually believing or not even cognizantly, but just kind of subconsciously believing this false notion about evangelism? And it's this. God only shows up when I show up. That God only begins to pursue the lost when I bring up the awkward Jesus conversation. Because until then, God's not really pursuing the lost, right? No, what does the text say? No, the Son of Man came to what? Seek and to save the lost. That's what Jesus is already doing. That's what Jesus is already about. And so as we think about this, sometimes we think that God is only pursuing people only after kind of we get our head in the game and join in. But what I want to show us from the book of Acts in particular, in Acts chapter 8, is that this is a complete false notion. God is already at work in people's lives. And the invitation is for us to join in the work that God is already doing in the lives of people. So if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 8, that was all kind of a long intro to this. Acts chapter 8 starting in verse 26. The text says this. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Now just kind of by way of background, Philip is one of, kind of one of the early leaders of the early church. He's one that's kind of put himself out there. He said yes to Jesus. And at this point in the story in the book of Acts, what we've seen for the most part is that yes, the spirit of God has descended upon God's people and large numbers of people have come to meet Jesus. You read about 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Hundreds if not thousands more in the chapters that follow. But here in Acts chapter 8, the story slows down to zoom in on one individual. And this, I think, speaks to the heart of God that, yes, God wants to see revival and breakthrough and, and massive people come to know him. But God also zooms in and slows down for the one. 
And just like how Jesus said the good shepherd goes after the one and leaves the 99, so too here in the book of Acts we see this on display. The story slows down to zoom in on this one. Verse 27, he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Again, by way of background. An Ethiopian and a eunuch? That's like two strikes against you if you're kind of a first century Jew. Two strikes in the sense that this is kind of one of those groups of people that would have been the least likely, one of the unlikely kinds of people to actually want to come to know the true and living God. Elsewhere earlier in the Old Testament, a eunuch, someone who was a biological male who more than likely was castrated for the sake of kind of some higher governing official so that that person who was castrated would not be able to mess around with the king or queen's harem. That's kind of the idea here. But a eunuch in particular, and someone outside the boundaries and the walls of, of kind of the first century Israel, would have been considered, especially in the Torah with a eunuch, someone who is not welcome. Someone who's kind of on the margins or on the outside. But as you kind of keep reading through the Old Testament in particular, you get to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah foresees the day when someone like outside of the boundaries of what we might consider first century Judaism and a eunuch in particular in the book of Isaiah are actually beginning to be welcomed into the family of God. And so here in Acts chapter 8, we begin to see that fulfillment. As he came down to Jerusalem to worship, he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Well, just imagine here. You're Philip, or you're the Ethiopian eunuch. Kind of picture yourself in one of the two. But first, think about Philip. Philip, he's in this moment where he's available. He's paying attention. He's aware of what God might be saying and doing. And if you're the Ethiopian eunuch, you're in this moment of asking questions, wondering, what is this whole Isaiah prophet Old Testament thing all about? Like, what exactly am I reading? But one thing to, in particular to notice that God is already working in the Ethiopian's life. God is already stirring something up in the Ethiopian eunuch's heart. Philip's job is not to like start the process. No, Philip is invited to join in on a process that is already starting, that's already happening. Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture he was reading was this. And this is a quote from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Now, I get that for most of us, we're probably not going to have a conversation like this this week of like, I'm wondering who this person is in the book of Isaiah. Someone tell me. And it's just really easy. Like, Jesus, right? But do you see what's happening, though? God is already working in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch before Philip arrives on the scene. God is already stirring some curiosity, some desire, some inkling toward the true and living God before Philip even enters this person's life. And I can't help but wonder for how many people that we might be thinking God was never or will never get involved in that person's life. That person's way too far gone. That person's life is so jacked up, so crazy, so you fill in the blank. God's really not pursuing them. Do we believe that about our God? Maybe we don't, like, say that, but maybe, like, kind of deep within us, at, like, a subconscious level, there's something in there that says, yeah, God really isn't working in that person's life. But I can't help but wonder, when you, I read a story like this, how many people are we perhaps discounting from the love and the mercy and the generosity of God because we think God's only going to work in certain ways or God's only going to work if I actually bring up the Jesus conversation? I can't help but wonder. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, which quick side note, think about this. Philip is explaining the good news of Jesus from the Old Testament. 
Just as a brief side note again, the importance of the Old Testament in the life of a Christian cannot be overstated enough. That it is from the book of Isaiah that Philip begins to quote-unquote evangelize, quote-unquote talk about the good news of Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, verse 36. And the eunuch said, see, here is some water. What prevents me from getting baptized? I mentioned a moment ago we're having baptisms on Easter. One of the things that we talk about, I've been, I've been meeting with people the past week or so about what baptism is and as we get ready for baptism. One of the things that we talk about is that in the New Testament in particular, you will not find an unbaptized follower of Jesus. It's basically two sides of the same coin. And in particular, when someone comes to know Jesus, the kind of the first question that's asked is, where's some water? Let's get you baptized. Do you see that here in the text? There's not like this, okay, pass the theology exam. Tell me your theology on baptism and your theology on the Trinity and your theology on X, Y, and Z, and then we'll baptize you. No, repent and be baptized, Peter would say in Acts chapter 2. Or here in Acts chapter 8, where's some water? Let's get baptized. And so again, just the celebration that we get to be a part of in a couple weeks of getting to see people who've made this decision and say, yes, that's me. I don't have my theology all figured out. I don't have my life all figured out, but I know Jesus is king, and I want to give my life to him, and I have given my life to him. And so we celebrate that. We celebrate the work that God does in people's lives when that happens. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, this is only one story in the book of Acts, obviously. But if we had more time, I would take you to more stories about how God is already at work in people's lives, and God invites his people to join in on that work that's happening. Later on in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 9, Saul, you know, many of you know the story. He's not, kind of literally knocked off his horse. But Saul, he's invited, he's called by God to become a follower of Jesus. And Saul, yes, does turn and repent. But it's not till later that God calls another man, Ananias, and says, Ananias, go talk to this Saul guy. And Ananias is like, no, 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 I can't be right. That can't be right. Saul's not anyone that would ever come to know Jesus. But Ananias begins to realize, you know what? God was already working in Saul's life. And Ananias is invited to join in on what God is doing in Saul's life. Later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, Peter, or sorry, Paul has this dream, this vision. That he wants to go, into the, the, go, go east to bring the gospel. But then he's actually forbidden to go east. He's forbidden to go that direction. He has this call to actually go back to Macedonia. Why? Because God is already at work in the churches in Macedonia. And that Paul is being invited to join in on the work God is already doing in the lives of the people in Macedonia. Acts chapter 18, Paul is in Corinth. He's in a state of fear. He's worried. He's like, where are people going to actually come to know Jesus? How is this actually going to happen? And God speaks to Paul, and he says in Acts chapter 18, do not fear because I have many people in this city. Referring to, there's many people here that I'm going to reach, that I'm going to work, that I'm going to reach into and grab a hold of. The point being, all throughout the pages of the New Testament, we see over and over again, God is already at work in people's lives. God is already reaching in. The invitation for us as followers of Jesus is not to like take God to places where God is not already working, but to slow down, open our eyes, and go, God, where are you working? I want to join in that. I want to join in that work that you are already doing. Now, this doesn't mean that your neighbor is probably going to be reading, you know, the book of Leviticus tomorrow morning on their front porch and going, I wonder who the true and better sacrifice is, right? And then you can just tell them Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is simply this. Do we believe, do we really believe that God is working in that person's life? Think about that one person that might come to mind. That God somehow, some way, as the Bible says, God desires all people to be saved. And do we believe that somehow, some way, God is working in that person's life and that somehow God perhaps might want to invite you to join in on that work that He is already doing? Again, as we think about this, we're talking about real people that we love deeply. I know for many of us, this is brothers and sisters, moms and dads, close family friends, people that we pray for and we agonize and we wonder, God, would you work in their life? 
God, would you reveal your goodness and your mercy to them? And we question and we wonder, God, are you really working? Are you really paying attention to X, Y, or Z or this situation or that person in particular? And the testimony of Scripture all throughout is that God, yes, is seeking and saving those that Jesus called lost, those who are searching for a home. You know, recently I read this great little book called Center Set Church. kind of really talks a lot about some of the values that we, I think, embody here at Wellspring. But the author of this book, Center Set Church, talks about how there's different kinds of receptivity points that people have, kind of where they might be in their journey where they might be in their questioning of Jesus. And he talks about how people kind of might be in a season number one of being from distrusting Christians to trusting Christians. That you might know people like this. Of like having this kind of perceived notion of Christians are X, Y, or Z, and it's kind of a negative connotation. And they're not really willing to trust a Christian. Or secondly, moving from a season of being complacent to curious. Like, ah, I'm good with my life. But then that curiosity begins to peak, or moving from being closed to open, closed off from anything that anyone else might say about how they should change or live their life, to actually being open to something new, something different happening in their life. And then number four, moving from meandering, kind of just wandering, where there's a little bit of seeking, but not really, to then more of like an intentional seeking. This is maybe where the eunuch himself is in Acts chapter 8. He's kind of meandering. He's kind of looking at Scripture a little bit, but then he begins to actually seek. And then finally, finally deciding that, yes, I'm into this Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to be a part of his kingdom. Now, I say all this to kind of just paint this picture of the people that we might be thinking about right now are all over the map as far as where they might be with Jesus. And it might have to do with their perception of Christians or the perception of the church or their understanding of the Bible or their kind of not understanding of the Bible. The point is simply this, that we can't just kind of cookie cutter people and be like, okay, if I just tell them these three or four points about the gospel or whatever, then boom, you should just believe right then. Because there's often a lot of pre-work. There's often a lot of kind of letting people be on that journey and allowing God to work, allowing the spirit of God to move in those processes to see them, let them as the Spirit leads and guides, from whether it's seeking to doubting to questioning, from meandering, all these different things that we're talking about, that God is at work in each of these places and probably more than we can name or put on a slide. Does that kind of make sense there? Now, as we think about this, even more particularly for our everyday lives, there's a few things I just want to highlight as we think about this and kind of land a little bit. The first one is simply, and I'm going to kind of all kind of build them around this, this, with three R's, so to speak. And the first one I want to just point out is this idea of reflecting, of reflecting. And this is simply this kind of, when you think about the, the story that we read in, the, in Acts chapter 8, the idea of like slowing down and recognizing that we are not the ones sort of like bringing the goods. We're not the ones that always have to like make it happen. That we are invited to slow down to reflect and ask that question, God, where are you already working? How are you already working? Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors in his book, The Contemplative Pastor, he talks about how in his pastoral ministry, as he was about to meet with someone, he would, he would remind himself that he is the one showing up late to a meeting. And what he meant by that was not that he was intentionally showing up late every time he had like a two o'clock meeting with someone, but that as he would arrive, hopefully on time, for a two o'clock meeting, he recognized that God was already meeting with that person. God is already working in that person's life. And it was Eugene Peterson's invitation to recognize, how can I reflect, slow down, and ask, God, where are you already working? Where are you already ministering to this person? And I can't help but wonder for us, as we think about the people in our lives that we love deeply, what would it look like to reflect and slow down? And ask that question, God, where are you already working in that person's life? And to slow down and reflect upon our own lives. God, how are you working in my own life in this area? What kind of fears and insecurities, as you slow down and reflect, kind of arise within you about this idea of being explicit about our faith? Kind of demonstrating and living out the message of the good news of Jesus. And so I would encourage you this week to think about this. When you think about Jesus' words in particular in Matthew chapter 9, 
Here's another beautiful passage. Matthew 9, Jesus said this, or the text says, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but what? The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of hearts to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, pray that God would pursue the lost. Jesus does not say, pray that God would seek and save those who don't know him. That's already assumed. That's already part of what God is doing. What's the prayer? That we would slow down, that we would join in, that we would be sent out into the work that God is already doing. In John's gospel, these words were said as the disciples and Jesus were passing through Samaria. Samaria, that place in the Jewish mindset that those people, that place, the furthest that would ever come to know God. Those despised people. And Jesus said in John chapter 4, open your eyes to the harvest. It's here in this place, in Samaria, that God is at work. So whether it's the Ethiopian eunuch who would have been dismissed as someone who, ah, they're not going to ever come to know Jesus. Or the Samaritans in John's gospel. The scriptures repeatedly declare, no, that there is a work of God that's happening. So what would be the Samaritans or the Ethiopian eunuch in the first century perhaps is for us, that person at the play date or that classmate or that coworker or that person that kind of bugs us and says those kind of weird things that we're kind of forced to be in a relationship with. But perhaps it's some of those people that we might have dismissed I mean, it might have discounted God working in their lives. What would it look like this week to slow down and reflect, God, how are you working in those relationships? What do you want me to see in those moments? How can I join in the work that you are already doing in those people's lives? Which leads me to my second point, relate. So the first one's reflect. The second one's relate. Now, what I don't mean by this, kind of as a quick side note, I don't mean be relevant, which is relevant is like one of those, I don't know, just that word bugs me every time it's associated with Christianity, right? That's not what I'm saying here, but that's a different sermon. But when I do say relate, when I talk about relate and being relatable, what I am saying is that recognizing that people are on all sorts of different moments in their journey, all sorts of different kind of questions and ideas and backgrounds as to Jesus, the gospel, the Bible, all these sorts of things. And I do think as we reflect and slow down, how can we, as followers of Jesus, relate to people? Another way of saying that, meet people where they're at. To really not just cookie-cutter people and be like, okay, I've told you a Jesus story or two. Why don't you believe? And I go like no one's actually doing that. But sometimes it's hard for us to really engage and slow down and see that people are all over their journey, their background, their ideas of Christianity. And some of that's not even our fault, right? Some of it's like, okay, because of the media or a politician or the news or whatever, Christianity is associated with all these things that honestly have nothing to do with the gospel. And then you're telling me, Aaron, I have to go share my faith. I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want to be, I don't want to be known as whatever, you know, the media portrays about Christianity or Christians. And so that kind of then creates this like awkward moment of like, I don't want to like share my faith because I'm afraid of getting associated with this and And then what ends up happening is that the true and beautiful Jesus never gets talked about. And so we leave media and social media and politicians and whatever to kind of caricature Christians or to kind of make Christianity something that it really isn't all about. But what would it look like to actually slow down and to relate to people? Ask questions. Where are they at? How can I meet people where they're at? Now, to kind of put some teeth to this a little bit. Sam Chan, he's an Asian scholar, professor, wrote this really cool book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. And he gave like five or six kind of really practical tips on how to like relate to people in kind of a postmodern skeptical kind of environment. So I just want to briefly share some of these with you here. I'll have them on the slide. The first one, he talks about mixing friends. And what he means by this is kind of exactly what it sounds. Try to be in environments where you have Christian and non-Christian friends together at, at the same time. And what he's trying to get at here and talk about is that oftentimes, like I just mentioned, there's often these preconceived notions of what Christians are like and how Christians behave. But if you can create these environments where there's a mix happening, 
Some of those, like to use the technical term, plausibility structures, or like people's perceived ideas of who Christians are, those walls slowly over time begin to crumble. And that what people think about Christians is not necessarily what's portrayed all the time in the media. That Christians are actually really fun, enjoyable people to be around. And think about Jesus. He had a good time with people, right? He's having those dinner parties. He's turning water into wine. He is someone who gets invited to these things. And so as we think about this, what would it look like in our lives to have those informal, casual environments where, like, sometimes we want a bucket. These are my church friends. These are my non-church friends. And those two kind of stay apart. But what would it look like slowly over time with wisdom, with carefulness, all those sorts of things and the nuance to begin to mix those kind of crowds together? Again, this isn't like pre-programmed stuff, but this is just kind of casually, collectively allowing the Spirit to lead in those kinds of moments. Second thing, go to their things before they come to your thing. And what he's talking about here is this idea sometimes we talk about, again, I just did it this morning. Invite someone to church. Great. Do it. It's awesome. But what about going to one of their things, someone who doesn't follow Jesus, before you kind of force them, not force them, but ask them to come to a church thing? What would it look like to go to their birthday parties, their social gatherings, seek genuine interest in someone else's life that doesn't follow Jesus and want to be a part of what's going on in their lives before then just being, okay, now you, you should come to my thing and I'm not actually going to go to your thing. I don't know. Something to think about. Something to perhaps kind of meander or, or talk about. The third thing, invite for coffee, then dinner, then gospel. This is kind of this, this basic idea of kind of build that relationship over time. Start small, coffee. Build that into dinner. And then eventually over time, bring in that kind of gospel conversation. Especially, I think, in a postmodern kind of skeptical culture. Relationships really matter. Trust really matters. And so building that trust over time, coffee, dinner, those sorts of gatherings over time earns and gives that sense of credibility to then bring in that kind of conversation that potentially, yes, is going to still be awkward at times, especially if this is something new for you. But I do think it helps to build that sort of relationship. Number four, listen to their story. And what, what we mean here is that people aren't projects, right? People aren't projects in that this is like, my job to try to convert to you and to convince you and to kind of just like make you become a Christian. That's not what we're talking about. But listening to someone's story, genuinely caring about who they are, their background, their hurts, their pains, their family upbringing, genuinely loving them, whether or not they become a follower of Jesus or not, genuinely being their friend, whether they ever come to church or not, are we willing to listen to people's stories like that? The one after that, though, share your story. Because friendship, vulnerability, requires that we would be the kinds of people that don't just hold back who we are. That we would share our own struggles, our own vulnerabilities, our own story. To, again, help build that sense of trust. Now, I think as a part of this, though, sharing your own story, I think it can and should be appropriate. As followers of Jesus, that we would bring up Jesus in conversations about our own story. Right? It would only make sense if your story as a follower of Jesus is simply that, as a follower of Jesus, then Jesus would ma it would make sense that Jesus is a part of our story, right? Because here's what we don't want to have happen. We talk about, especially kind of my generation and younger, we love this idea of like friendship evangelism and kind of being casual and so on and so forth. And we're kind of, again, my own generation speaking anecdotally, we don't really like the like, you know, I'm going to hand out tracts to strangers kind of a thing. That's kind of not, not our vibe, right, as millennials. But what we don't also want to have happen is we just kind of build these friendships. And then like five years later, someone goes, oh my goodness, you're a Christian. I didn't know that. You were such a good friend. But I had no idea you were a Christian. Does that make sense? Both, I think, there's some wisdom there of like, yes, genuinely listening to their story, sharing your story, building that friendship. And yes, Jesus, if he is a part of your story, and if you're a follower of Jesus, he is part of your story. That begins to come up. Now, let me just kind of drill down a little bit more on this. Get even more practical. One of the ways that I've been challenged personally in this is that when someone asks you, how was your weekend or what did you do this weekend? Kind of an easy way in 
to bring up the Jesus conversation is don't avoid the fact that you're here this morning. Right? I was, however you want to phrase that, but talk about somehow, if it's genuinely part of your story and genuinely part of how your weekend went, perhaps talk about, I went to church. I hung out with people that I love and care about. And we're part of this awesome little family that, you know, we're imperfect and we're kind of messed up, but, you know, we're here together trying to figure this thing out. And we talk about Jesus a lot. Or, again, this is kind of, kind of more anecdotally for me, one of the kind of the most nerve-wracking conversations that often happens, and this just happened just this past week, because I drop off Sienna, our oldest, at school at Robert Down, and I have like this 10, 15-minute gap before I have to drop Kaysen off at the preschool kind of right behind, behind the school there at the community center. And I have, we have like this, you've probably seen it, the, the bike that we have where our two kids kind of ride on the back of it, and so it's kind of this spectacle, you know, when we kind of park it at places. And so people ask me, okay, like, oh, that's a cool bike, and conversation begins to start. And so we're, I'm having this conversation with this other dad who I've never met, and I think the kid, their kid doesn't go to the preschool. And he's asking me about the bike, where'd you get it, so on and so forth. And then the conversation generally comes up with, so what do you do for work? Right? And so in that moment, there's like, um, I'm a public speaker? I don't know. Like, and, but like, I'm trying to, like, I feel this deep within me. Like, my hands are like wet with sweat in that moment. I get nervous every time that question comes up. And so, and it just, I'm just trying to name that. So I, I empathize and sympathize with you. If you're, if that's you in that moment of like bringing up the Jesus conversation just brings up all this kind of fear or whatever that might be. Know that God is working in that. Because this is just as much about God transforming other people's hearts as it is about God transforming our hearts personally. If someone were to ask me, what would be one thing that I could perhaps kind of lean in towards to really propel my growth and discipleship in the way of Jesus? I would say it would be becoming more explicit about sharing your faith. Because if you lean into that and you really press into God, how might I join in with what you're already doing in this world with other people? It'll force you to be in this moment of prayer, independence, seeking him, leaning on him for the words and the guidance. Because you can't do this on your own. You can't live this life on your own. And you can't even demonstrate and share your faith in a genuine, authentic way without leaning on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It requires that. And this is a part of, too, when we talk about sharing your story, think about this. Think about intentionally. How might you even just write it out in a paragraph this week or think about it in a very intentional way? How would you talk about Jesus in your life to someone that you know and trust? Like how would Jesus work in your life in particular? This isn't like give me like a theology of like the nature of the atonement or like the, you know, the, the deity or humanity of Christ. I'm not talking about that specifically. I'm talking about can you narrate your own story in such a way where Jesus is genuinely a part of that? Have you thought about how would I tell my own story and how Jesus has worked in my life in a paragraph or two? And to really think and ponder that. Because it's just only natural that as followers of Jesus, as we share our story, that eventually Jesus would come up as part of that sharing. The last one is simply this. Tell a story about Jesus. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them, the gospel according to fill in the blank, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when we think about sharing the gospel, one of the ways that I think that kind of plays itself out is sharing one of the stories found in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It doesn't necessarily have to be like the most detailed or it doesn't have to be like a theology from Paul or anything, but perhaps it's the story we talked about in our young adults group that meets on Wednesdays about one of, the, one of my favorite stories in all scriptures, Mark chapter 2 where the friends bring the paralytic man and they're pounding on the, on the roof and they're creating a huge mess and a huge scene and how it's the friends that are bringing their friend to Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith, plural. Their faith. So the friend's faith is included in this and the man is healed. And I just think that's a beautiful picture of how God works. He sees the faith of the community and works in individual people's lives. And again, just telling that story, 
just telling whatever one or two favorite stories you have about Jesus. How am I, and again, this requires relationship and trust and building that over time. How might we be able to bring those stories into those conversations? Now, the last R, and I'll end with this, is simply risk. Taking a risk. Because as much as my own personality does not like awkward conversations and doesn't like to maybe even challenge people or kind of go into these sorts of areas in these kind of relationships, I do think for many of us, probably the most of us, taking a risk in this area. It doesn't have to necessarily be tomorrow, but as we grow in our discipleship to Jesus, are we willing to take the risk? Are we willing to kind of put ourselves out there and maybe be kind of thought of as you're kind of a Jesus follower? Are we willing to take that risk of maybe not having all the answers? Guess what? You probably don't have all the answers, and that's okay. Because, again, it's not about you bringing God to places where God already is not. It's not about you having and bringing the goods where God can't fill in the gap. No, God is already at work. And as we slow down and reflect, perhaps for many of us, the invitation is to take that risk. I wonder for Philip in particular. I wonder in that moment, as the Spirit of God is telling him, go talk to this person, this Ethiopian eunuch, what was coming up in his own heart and mind? What feelings are kind of being arisen as this is kind of happening in Philip's mind and life? And what feelings come up as we think about, okay, that person, those people, that family member, that might kind of resonate with this? And how might we be willing to perhaps take that risk in our lives? And willing to kind of put ourselves out there a bit. And again, as we kind of close this morning, again, this topic of being a blessing in the world, of being the kinds of people who show and demonstrate the love of Christ, is yes, it's difficult, it's hard, it's not always like the funnest or easiest thing because of those awkward moments. But friends, I'm telling you, what the scriptures are inviting us to see and understand is that God is already in this business of seeking and saving the lost. And that we have the privilege and the joy of joining in on this endeavor. If Jesus, who he true, if, if, if what Jesus says about himself is true, if what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he's up to in the world, that Jesus truly is seeking and saving the lost, that Jesus is truly making all things new, that one day there will be a day when there's no more suffering, pain, death, and tears, and all those former things are being wiped away. And if new creation is our final destiny in reality, and we get to be a part of a new heavens and new earth with no sin and suffering, and if God is making all things new in the person of Jesus and he has given us the gift of his spirit, if this is really true, wouldn't we not want people to join in on it? Would we not want people to experience the abundant life Jesus says he came to bring? And yes, we want to love people regardless of the choice or the decisions that they make. But it's because Jesus loved people, he talked about the kingdom of God. It's because Jesus cared for people that he was willing to put himself out there to the point where he suffers and dies on behalf of us, to the point where he gives his life freely so that we might be a part of God's kingdom and to know and experience and feel the love of God. And for those of us who have genuinely experienced and felt and known God's loving gaze and presence in our lives, you know how powerful this is. And you know how beautiful and transformative God's spirit is in our lives. And it stands to reason then, that just as we sung a couple songs ago, let your love lead me and guide me. Let your love be the compelling force, the, the motivating factor that leads me and guides me to minister to people who are far from you. Because God is already at work in those people's lives. And so as the worship team comes up, and as we kind of transition a little bit into continuing to worship through song. We want to take this moment as a church, as the family of God, to, to remember the sacrifice and the love of God demonstrated in the cross, in the cross and resurrection of Jesus for the taking of communion. And so for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is a beautiful moment, an important, sacred moment to remember the love of God demonstrated in the person of Jesus. 
that Jesus willingly has given himself, his life for you and for me. That Jesus does not stand at a distance away from the mess of your life and my life. No, he comes, he enters into the pain and the brokenness of this world to the point of giving his own life, death on the cross. And so as Jesus was with his disciples, people that would have been just like at the bottom of society prior to them meeting Jesus, people that zealots and tax collectors and people that were just kind of doing their own thing, but Jesus has reached in to save them. Jesus is with that group of friends hours before he's going to get betrayed and crucified, and he takes that bread, and he says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes that bread, and he dips it in the wine and said, this is my blood poured out for you, that sins may be forgiven. And friends, the deepest longing and the deepest need is that we would know the love of Christ despite our sin, despite our brokenness. As we turn and we repent of our sin and come back to him, we experience again and again and again the loving mercy and kindness of our God. And so for us, is before we are sent back out into whatever kind of sphere of influence we might have, we need to be replenished. We need to be restored and made new again by the finished work of Jesus in our lives. And so as friends, as the worship team plays here, I want to invite you, we'll have, if you're going to serve communion, I want you to, if you can, join up me up here. There'll be some folks up here in the front. And as the, as the band plays and as you feel led, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come down the center aisle here. There'll be folks to my right and to my left. And they'll come up here. As you come up here, they'll say to you, as you take the bread, the body of Christ broken for you. And you dip that into the juice and they'll say the blood of Christ shed for you. And friends, it's in this moment as we gather together that we get the privilege of remembering the love of Christ demonstrated for us, that we might be the kinds of people that thus demonstrate and show that love to those that we come in contact with. So Jesus, we ask that you would do and continue that work in all our lives that we would just have a fresh appreciation and awareness of your mercy and your love towards us. God, that you would just help us to recognize that we have been given new life in you. And that for all of us, wherever we might be on our own journey with you, Jesus, God, that you would meet us in that and that you would continue to work in the lives of people that we love and care about deeply. God, thank you for already working in our lives and working in those lives around us. And we ask God for a deeper sense of trust and faith in you. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name.